This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Chris Stapleton cover one of the most memorable Southern rock anthems of all time. It's also one of the most covered songs of all time. The song is Freebird, and today we bring you the story of Leonard Skinner. Here's Jesse. In the summer of 1964, a group of teenagers from Jacksonville, Florida, started the American Southern rock group Leonard Skinner. Ronnie Van Zant, Bob Burns, Alan Collins, Gary Rossington, and Larry Junstrom originally named the band My Backyard, but it was a mocking tribute to their PE teacher, who was notorious for enforcing the school's policy against boys having long hair, that they would come up with the name Leonard Skinner. Gary Rossington is a founding member who plays rhythm and lead guitar. We really got in a lot of fist fights, really, for having long hair. We used to play clubs, and the sailors would come out and wait for us because we had, I mean, long hair was touching your ears. That was long back then. That was when the Beatles were freaks because they had such long hair, you know. It was against school rules to have long hair then, so we put Vaseline and Brill cream, and we'd grease it back and plaster it down, and, and it would be good. All the teachers thought we had short hair, but then at gym, you had to take a shower. It was mandatory. You had to take a shower after gym. So we'd take a shower, and Leonard Skinner was our gym coach. That's Leonard Skinner, spelled right. And so he would walk through the showers every day, checking up on his students, and he'd see us taking a shower and see the Vaseline out of our hair, and it would touch our ears. It would touch our cheek. It would touch our shoulders, you know. But so he finally kicked us out. and kicked, Well, he suspended us and kicked us out so long that we finally quit when I was 16. That was the legal age you could quit when you were 16, so we quit then because we were playing the church dances and the teen clubs and the, and the clubs around town. And we had to be cool, man. The last time they were kicked out of school, they never looked back. Leonard Skinner would continue to perform at church dances, schools, and venues all over the southeastern states before making it big. The recordings for their first album began in 1971 at the famous Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama with Jimmy Johnson, one of the original Swampers, as the producer. Our friend found this band in Jacksonville called Leonard Skinner. I was a sucker to want to cut that band immediately. So we signed them. They had no money. And I remember they, they would come up here and they'd check in a truck stop where they'd get in fights with the truckers because they're long hair. And basically all they had to eat was peanut butter sandwiches the whole time. But I, I love this band. I didn't know if it'd be a hit, but I'll tell you one thing, if you listen to those songs, some of the best rock and roll songs, I've ever heard. Places I must see. 
Skinner would record 17 tracks in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, including what would become one of their biggest hits of all time with Freebird. This is not the version of Freebird that most of us are used to hearing on the radio. That one was recorded in Atlanta in 1973. This is the original version. I'm as free as a bird now. And this bird you cannot change. Oh, and the bird you cannot change. And the bird you cannot change. After two years of recording with Jimmy Johnson at Muscle Shoals without getting the attention from a major record label, the Skinnerd boys weren't happy. Roger Hawkins and David Hood are both part of the original Swampers, the studio musicians and music producers that once worked at the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. The tapes that Jimmy had done, everybody had turned down. And uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, they had turned it down is the, the manager of the group or something was taking the tape around and somehow he had gotten the tape twisted on the reel and so everywhere they'd go and play the tape it was real muffled. it was real muffled, muffled I mean, it was playing the wrong side they were of the playing tape the wrong side of the tape and 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 the Skinner boys thought that uh Jimmy or somebody had done something to sabotage their music cuz they couldn't understand why it sounded so bad everywhere they would go play it and the the uh manager bless his heart just didn't really know and uh, so it was turned down by everyone I mean, Freebird, all these songs were recorded with, yeah. in this studio first. After playing nearly a decade without a record contract, the band was understandably frustrated. But they played on. And when we return, the story of Leonard Skinner continues right here on Our American Stories. Mama told me when I was young Sit beside me
This is Our American Stories, and now we continue with the story of Leonard Skinner. Here's Jesse. Soon, Leonard Skinner was discovered by musician, songwriter, and producer Al Cooper of Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Atlanta. Here again is guitarist Gary Rossington. We were playing Finocchio's Bar. We had done all the clubs and stuff in Florida and, and southern Georgia, and we finally made it up to Atlanta. And we would played this place, Finocchio's, for, you know, two or three, four months. I mean, a week, and then we'd leave. And one night we were playing, so we looked down there with Al Cooper in the audience, and we were playing, boy, and we saw him, and we went, that's Al Cooper, we better play good, you know. So we started playing good, so he came up on the break and said, hey, you guys are real good. Will you play our next song, and I can record it and take it to my label? I want to start a record company called Sounds of the South, a subsidiary of MCA. And we went, sure. So he recorded us and flew to L.A. the next day and played it for all the guys way back when. And they liked us, and they kind of signed us, or he signed us to that label. But that's how it happened. And that same night... Is uh, we were walking out the door, it was one of them fight nights, and this guy got beat up, and we got beat up, and there was people thrown in jail, and Al Cooper thought, oh, what have I done? He was pulling his hair out and, and thinking, oh man, but he thought we were cool, because cause we weren't doing nothing, we were just leaving, they cut us down because of our hair. And it wasn't like we started trouble, we just wouldn't take no. Shortly after this fateful encounter with Al Cooper, the band went back into the recording studio. This time at Studio One outside of Atlanta, where they would record their debut album, titled Pronounced Leonard Skinnerd, which was released on August 13th, 1973. With hit songs like Tuesday's Gone, Gimme Three Steps, and a new recording of Freebird, the album quickly put Skinnerd on the rock and roll map. But there was one song on this album that almost didn't make the cut. Here's Leonard Skinnerd guitarist, Ed King. We worked up a song called Simple Man. We went into the studio and said, Al, I want you to hear this tune. And we played it for Al, and he says, oh, I'm not going to let you guys record that. And uh, Ronnie says, well, you got your car outside. Why don't you just go out in your car and go on home, and we'll just record it here without you. And Al said, well, you guys can't do that. And so Ronnie escorted him out to the car. He said, you either get out right now or we're going to have some trouble. So Al Cooper left, and we stayed there that night and recorded Simple Man all by ourselves. <laughs> and uh, it turns out to my, you know this day, it's my favorite, one of my favorite Skinner songs of all time. You know, and I think even now it's one of Al Cooper's favorites. You know, he came back and ended up playing organ on it. You know, but uh, everybody makes mistakes. Lead singer Ronnie Van Zant's grandmother had died around the same time as guitarist Gary Rossington's mother passed. The two started talking. Rossington came up with the chord progression while Van Zandt wrote the lyrics based on the advice that the women had given them over the years. They wrote the song in an hour. Mama told me when I was young Sit beside me my only son Listen closely
Here's the isolated vocal track from Ronnie Van Zant. Oh, take your time. Don't live too fast. Troubles will come. And they will pass. Go find a woman. Yeah, yeah. And you'll find love. And don't forget, son. There is someone up above And be a simple kind of man Or be something you love and understand Baby, be a simple kind of man Oh, won't you do this for me, son, if you can Simple Man became Skinner's third best-selling digital song after Sweet Home Alabama and Freebird, with over 1.5 million sold. Freebird was, is, and will always be Leonard Skinner's signature song. Despite having three guitarists, the track opens with an organ as the lead instrument, giving the guitars more impact when they arrive. In early versions of the song, this section was done on piano, but producer Al Cooper convinced the band that the organ was the way to go. Cooper himself played the instrument on this track. He happened to have some experience, as he's the same guy who came up with the organ section on Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. But the record company didn't want Freebird on the album, because they thought it was too long and radio stations wouldn't play it. The album version runs 9 minutes 8 seconds long. Here again is guitarist Gary Rossington. It was weird, you know, because back at that time, Everybody said you had to cut three-minute songs or three-and-a-half, four minutes with the tops or that you'd get no airplay. And we cut this song nine minutes, and live it's 15, but, but on studio cut was nine, and they went, no, this song will never get airplay. You can't do it. Producers and the managers and everybody in the whole world but us, and we thought this is the song we wrote and meant and from our hearts and... But, you know, we were told that would never be, and we said, well, we don't care. It goes over good live. You know, it's a good uh, live song, and we don't care if it, you know, we, you can play the other ones for radio, but we want this one. But this is it, and we weren't going to change it. We were, you know, southern redneck rebels that we weren't changing our ways. Hell no, we ain't forgetting either. At over a full minute longer than Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, the lyrics end at 4 minutes 57 seconds into the track. The last four minutes comprise perhaps the most famous instrumental passage in rock history, allowing guitarists Alan Collins, Ed King, and Gary Rossington to jam for extended periods long after most songs would peter out. Now let's hear just the lead guitars. And now bring in the full band. Now just the drums. Or just the bass. Bring the drums back in. And the lead guitar. Polish it up. 
and you've just created one of the most popular American rock songs of all time. In one of the very few recordings of the lead singer actually speaking, Ronnie Van Zant gives a rare glimpse into his take on this timeless rock anthem. When we added the guitar arrangement on the end of it, uh, that seemed to really pick up. And like the song goes, like Freebirds, you know, right at, right at the end of the lyric, it's like I want to fly high like Freebird, and then the guitar starts soaring. There's something about, uh, you know, playing in front of 50,000 people and seeing them still get up for that song, seeing them stand up and... Just seeing the people get up and uh, put their hands together for a song that you wrote. Uh, the lyric content of Freebird is based on, on the idea of uh, you know everybody being free. Uh, to me, there's nothing freer than a, than a bird, you know, just flying wherever he wants to go. And uh, I don't know, that's what this this country is all about, you know, being free. And uh, I think everybody wants to be a free bird. In the United States, Freebird wasn't released as a single until a year after the album came out. By that time, Sweet Home Alabama had already been released, and the single version of Freebird was edited down, though the long version from the album has always been more popular. And when we return, the story of Leonard Skinner continues, right here on Our American Stories. stories and we're listening to the story of Leonard Skinner, one of the best American Southern rock and roll bands of all time. Let's continue the story. Skinner's fan base continued to grow rapidly throughout 1973, largely due to their opening slot on the Who's Quadrophenia Tour in the United States. Their 1974 follow-up album called Second Helping cemented the band's breakthrough. Then bassist and future guitarist for Leonard Skinner at the time, Ed King, describes how the opening track on that album Sweet Home Alabama came to him in a dream. 
Ronnie and I were li used to live together, and I'm sitting on my bed playing this guitar, and he walks in the room and sits down in the bed next to me and puts his arm around me and goes, Man, he said, I love you, but he said, Man, you're just the worst bass player I've ever played with. And I knew in my heart he was right, because I listened to the album, and there's so many things that on the album that I just wasn't happy with as far as the bass part. It's like it was hard for me to get a feel for some of it, you know. So I said, well, what do you want, what do, you want to do? He said, look, let's go out and talk to Leon. He's working at an ice cream factory here in town, and we'll see if we can't talk him into coming back and switch you over to guitar. I said, all right. So I went out that night and talked Leon into coming back. Two days later, we started rehearsal with me on guitar. And that day, Ronnie and I wrote Sweet Home, Alabama, rehearsal. So we were, I mean, I was inspired, you know, I was back on my main instrument, you know. And that night I went home and went to bed, and uh, the entire guitar solo came to me in a dream, note for note. Yeah, that's why that guitar solo, I only changed two notes in the whole solo to this day, but the rest of it is note for note because it came out in a dream, you know. I always sleep with a guitar next to the bed, and I woke up in the middle of the night after I'd heard this. And in my dream, I'd seen the fingerings and everything. It was, it was very tangible. So I woke up, picked up the guitar, and it just fit so perfect. And I went out to rehearsal the next day, and it just, man... Just fit like a glove, you know. It reached number eight on the U.S. charts in 1974 and was the band's second hit single. In March of 75, Skinner released their third album, Nothing Fancy, with songs like Saturday Night Special and Made in the Shade. Skinner's fifth album, released in October of 77, called Street Survivors, would reach double platinum with hits like What's Your Name and That Smell. Vonnie Van Zant's inspiration for that smell was the reckless indulgences of the band members, culminating in the evening when guitarist Gary Rossington got drunk and high, crashing his new Ford Torino into an oak tree along Mandarin Road in Jacksonville, Florida. October 20th, 1977, only three days after the release of the Street Survivors album and five shows in to their most successful headlining tour to date, Leonard Skinner's tour plane ran out of fuel near the end of their flight from Greenville, South Carolina. Realizing that the plane was out of fuel, the pilots attempt an emergency landing on a small airstrip. Despite their effort, at approximately 6.47 p.m., the plane skimmed about 100 yards along the top of a tree line before smashing into a large tree and splitting into pieces near Gillsburg, Mississippi. The crash occurred only 300 yards short of the airstrip. Most of the survivors had been seated towards the back of the plane. The dead include the pilot and the co-pilot, lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, his sister and backup singer Cassie Gaines, 
and assistant road manager Dan Kilpatrick. Local farmers were the first to respond on that dark October night in Mississippi. Helicopter stopped and was hovering right straight back through here. From that tree line in the very back, it's a quarter of a mile. Uh, it was a lot wetter that night. It was a lot wetter that night, and uh, we had to uh, cross a Blackwater Slough. And... Didn't really know what to do. I mean, you know, never seen anything like that. It... We got busy. Well, we didn't know who it was. Didn't have a clue. I was thinking to myself, what, what is a bunch of hippies doing on an airplane? They don't look like they can afford a ticket. I expected to see all dead people looking at these woods. I was amazed that there were that many survivors. A lot of folks was just in a small like, accordion mashed together and down in, you know, we would move a couple people and there's somebody else down there. They were moaning and saying like, get me out of here, you know, like that. As I was walking out, a uh, friend of mine from Magnolia uh, ran up to me and uh, told me that the plane was Leonard Skinner's plane. And that just, I mean, I just was taken back by it. But uh, he immediately then says, but don't worry, I think Leonard made it out. And uh, Van Zant, and, well, you know, you already know all the details about he died, but nobody that was uh, alive uh, when we got there died. And I was proud of that. I was amazed that there were that many survivors. I believe in higher authority, and, and that's the only thing I can account for. Survivors included singer Leslie Hawkins, bass guitarist Leon Wilkeson, guitarist Andy Collins, and guitarist Gary Rossington. At the time of the crash, it was the only people who died were right up front, and it was uh, it was Dean and me and Ronnie. I was in between Ronnie and Dean, and the other side was Steve and Cassie, and Alan was in between them, and me and Alan were in between all four people that died, so we always... You know, it's extra heavy to us that we were right there and we didn't die, and they did, but, you know, that's just spate. And... I just got scars all over me. I had all my bones, not all of them, but just about all of them broke. Both, both legs and both wrists and both arms, upper arms and, and wrists, and my pelvic bone and all my ribs and uh, my feet. and I don't know, just a million things. Everything was broke. Another survivor of the Skinnerd crash was Gene Odom, one of Ronnie Van Zant's best friends and bodyguard. I knew what we were in for, in my mind, and I was mad as hell. Them pilots were putting us in a situation, putting me in it. At 6.45.49 seconds in 5.5 Victor Mike, we're at 4.5. We had descended from 6,000 feet in that couple of minutes to 4,500 feet, coming in at a 50-degree angle. And I heard somebody say, trees, and that was the first top of the trees that the plane hit, and I turned to head back to my seat. And when we return, the story of Leonard Skinner continues right here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to the story of Leonard Skinner. We just heard about the tragic plane crash that killed the band's lead singer and several others. There were six fatalities and 20 survivors. Gene Odom had been thrown from the plane and broke his neck. His skin was badly burned and had one eye blinded by phosphorus from a de-icing flare that had been on board. After a month of recovery in the hospital, the realization of what had happened was just setting in. So they took me out to the uh, cemetery. And I said, what, 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 where are we going? They said, well, you're going to visit Ronnie. Ronnie didn't make it. And uh, that's the first I knew right then that Ronnie didn't make it. I didn't know it for the whole month. Nobody told me. I guess my, you know, they said that your condition was so bad that they didn't want to, to try to set you back any. And um, sad situation. And I was, you know, yeah, I was, I was uh, panicky, freaking out. I was just pissed off about uh, being in that situation. Being in a tub, 60,000-pound tub, is going to hit the ground. Uh, yeah, I'm still mad about it. It still pisses me off. For a while, it was a big shock. I mean, I was real upset um, that he didn't make it. Still am upset that he didn't make it, you know, and uh, really I kind of like, probably deep, deep down inside, I blame myself a whole lot. Billy Powell started Leonard Skinner as a roadie around 1970, but he became part of the band as a keyboardist when the group heard him playing the opening piano notes on the original version of Freebird, recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The band had no idea that he was a classically trained pianist. He also survived that plane crash. Everything we wanted back then, you know, material-wise and all that, but uh, just, you know, everybody in the band was lacking that one thing that we all, most of us have found now, especially me, and that's Jesus, you know. And I wish, I wish somebody had told me about him, you know, like after the airplane crash, I didn't realize, you know, why God kept me on this earth, and that was, you know, kept me alive, and that was to serve him. It's just that when the airplane was going down, instead of everybody panicking, there was 26 people on it, and, and when it went down, instead of everybody panicking, everybody started praying, I mean, quietly, real quietly started praying and I to this day truly believe that's why 20 people out of 26 survived because they're saying God help me now you know I really believe that you know if you saw a picture of the airplane you would you'd know it was a miracle that 20 survived out of 26 I just went into a severe state of depression for three years and started drinking getting heavy into drugs and stuff and I had the money to buy all the drugs I wanted which was a a, a big strike against me and um, I had you know I had all this material stuff that you know, I thought it was given to me by God at the time, you know, but uh, I know now that it was the devil, you know, and I just started drinking heavier and heavier. And uh, just about two years ago, I got my fourth DWI, that's how serious I got, and I went to jail for 30 days, and uh, I was alone in an eight-man jail cell, and the only thing I had to occupy myself with the whole time was a Bible that a brother of mine gave to me two days before I went in, not knowing that I was going to jail either. And he gave me a Bible, you know, it's like the Holy Spirit, you know, told him to give me a Bible. And that's all for eight for uh, thirty days. And that's all I did was read this Bible. And twenty days after reading it, just all day long, you know, just uh, reading the Bible from you know page one, Genesis, Exodus on. After about twenty days, I felt the presence of Jesus come in that cell for real. And he's it's like he gently tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Brother Billy, when you come out of here, you know, when you get out of here, if you can go back to that life of sin and drugs and all that, and you will surely die, as it says in Romans six twenty three. And uh, either that or you can walk with me and be with me for eternity and be in paradise with me. And I accepted him right then. I started weeping and everything. And uh, God's been good to me ever since. 
Leonard Skinner disbanded after the tragedy, returning only on one occasion to perform an instrumental version of Freebird at Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam 5 in January of 79. The surviving members were joined by Daniels and members of his band, and there, sitting in the middle of the stage while they performed, was an empty microphone for Ronnie Van Zandt. It was an incredibly emotional performance. Here again is Gene Odom, bodyguard and close friend of the late Ronnie Van Zandt. I wrote this in December 1977. I got to the hospital after the plane crash. It's gone, but will never be forgotten. A true Southern gentleman, I'm sure you'll agree, that's what Ronnie Van Zandt was to me. A singer, a writer, a friend of mine, who I will remember till my end of time. My dreams and memories will always represent the joyous times that Ronnie and I spent. He and Jesus both were common men. They both died working for what they believed in. God, you could not have asked for and received a finer man, I do believe. He sang of a bird that was free. That bird to me is a great man named Ronnie. If there is a heaven, and I hope there to be, I'm sure he is there so deservingly free. We were raised and grew up together day by day. As I travel through this life, I pray that we may meet again and be together someday. Your friend, Gene Odom. After I got to the hospital, I wrote that, and um, it wasn't until I got out of the hospital in 1977 that they told me Ronnie was dead. and. Um, The minute I walked out of the hospital, I uh, came out here to visit Ronnie. And today, uh, I'm back visiting him again. And a fella from up New York area came by and dropped this photograph off. You know, Ronnie's got a million fans and are constantly coming by here. It probably won't never stop. It's not the most joyous place for me to come visit because uh, I don't really think he's in there. I think he's just at another show, you know, doing another gig. And um, I personally won't never accept the fact that he's dead and gone. I, uh, I can't, you know. And um, you can see him in them photographs. And if you look hard enough, you can see him on stage. To me, he'll never be gone. In 1987, 10 years after the crash, Leonard Skinner reunited for a full-scale tour with five major members of the original band. Crash survivors Gary Rossington, Billy Powell, Leon Wilkeson, Artemis Pyle, along with guitarist Ed King, who had left the band two years before the crash, joined Ronnie Van Zant's younger brother, Johnny, who took over as the new lead singer and primary songwriter. 29 years after the crash, in 2006, Kid Rock introduced Leonard Skinner into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ronnie Van Zant was the truth to me. He was a true Southern poet. He was the simple man that he sang about. And when you really get into those lyrics and you start to talk about him, and I always say that Leonard Skinner is really, um, it's kind of Ronnie Van Zant's house to me, but man, it was built by a lot of hands, a whole lot of hands, great hands talking about the west side of Jacksonville, Florida, you know, uh, not, 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 not rich people, not any money, you know, the wrong side of town. And uh, 
to me, Leonard Skinner, these guys were like uh, kind of what a lot of the the guys in, in Britain and other places that, that absorbed this rock and roll blues music so well wanted to be. They wanted to be poor white boys from the South and knew how to pick and play like that. And these guys are the epitome of it to me. To go back to Ronnie, I think one of the most amazing things that I've learned about him is that he never wrote his lyrics down. And when you listen to these lyrics and the songs that, that he penned from Curtis Lowe to Tuesday's Gone, Ooh That Smell, Give Me Back My Bullets, Saturday Night Special, The Needle in the Spoon, What's Your Name, of course the uh, National Anthem of the South, Freebird, and you imagine a man that never wrote these lyrics down, I mean that's, that's pretty incredible to me. And of course Sweet Home Alabama, I mean to me that is probably the greatest song ever written. I mean pound for pound, that song, Sweet Home Alabama, that lick Ed King wrote. I love it to death, I live by it, and I think, uh, you know, one of Ronnie's greatest lyrics was, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? And we do remember Ronnie, and we do remember Alan Collins, Steve and Cassie Gaines, and Dean Kilpatrick, and it's long overdue for these uh, southern boys, you know, flag-waving, simple people to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Leonard Skinner. They kept on playing, even when nobody wanted to buy their first attempt at cutting an album. The plane crash that killed their lead singer and other bandmates couldn't stop them. And even though the remaining members of Leonard Skinner announced that 2018 would be their last tour, the music will live on forever. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. our American stories and we like to talk to people from all walks of life 
We're about to hear from a guy who has an interesting hobby. He's a black man who collects Ku Klux Klan robes. While hate groups like the Klan have dwindled from a population over a million in the 1920s to somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 members across the entire country today, our guest became fascinated with what makes people like this tick at a very young age. Here's Jesse. You've probably seen Daryl Davis on TV. Welcome back. We are about to bring you an almost unbelievable story out into the open. Ask yourself, how willing would you be to make friends with someone who hates you because of your skin color? Well, that's exactly why the man you're about to meet caught our attention. He's the black guy known for his uncanny ability to convert KKK members into kind-hearted everyday Americans such as yourself. Daryl flips Klansmen like he's flipping houses. And he always likes to keep a little trophy. They were given to me by active Klan members who left the organization. This is the robe of an Imperial wizard. Okay, this is the, the top guy. And uh, blue or purple, your choice, designates the Imperial level. Again, this is a white cotton robe with blue adornments. I keep a lot of them locked up off-site. Um, but I would guess, you know, I, I got three recently. And I would guess maybe I have between 40, 42, 44. Now we'll get back to his robe collection soon enough, because the Daryl Davis story starts with music. Chuck Berry had a very profound impact on me. The man was a genius. You know, many people can say that they wrote a song. Many people can say that they played a song. But few people can claim that they invented a genre of music. And Chuck Berry certainly did that. We would not have rock and roll without Chuck Berry. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell Go, go! And uh, when I first uh, heard Chuck Berry, I fell in love with that music And when I saw him, I changed my whole career trajectory that I was on as a kid while Daryl Davis was discovering his love for music, rock and roll was breaking down racial barriers among white and black kids who are now beginning to dance with each other. The invention of rock and roll by people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley, and the popularization of it by people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley and the Comets. When white kids and black kids heard that new rhythm, that new beat, that boogie-woogie with a backbeat to it, they could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs, knocked the ropes over and the signs over, and the next thing you know, they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together for the first time in the history of this country. Police would come in, shut down the show. So rock and roll had brought white youth and black youth together through music. The same thing that great civil rights activists like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and many other ones, black and white, were trying to achieve through their marches, through their demonstrations, their sit-ins, their boycotts, in efforts to bring white and black adults together. Chuck Berry and Elvis were achieving this through music. While rock and roll was bringing the country together, it was around this time that Daryl Davis had his first encounter with racism. When I was a kid, I had a racist incident while marching with the uh, Cub Scouts. I had people throwing uh, rocks and bottles at me, you know, white spectators. And I, d I did not understand why I was the target. 
And then when racism was explained to me, I could not accept it. I'd never heard of racism, and I could not get my head around the idea that someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew nothing about me or, or had ever seen me before, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. And I formed a question at the age of 10, 1968, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been seeking that answer now for the next, you know, 49 years. And I, I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, looking for the answer in these books. And I couldn't find it. So in my adult life, I figured, well, who better to ask than someone who would join an organization that is reputed to believe that somebody else is inferior who does not look like them or believe as they believe based on the color of their skin or their religious beliefs. So I decided I would seek out Klan members and ask them to answer the question, and then I would get my answer. So Daryl set out on his lifetime quest and eventually set up a meeting with the Klan. He was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Now, a state leader is what's known as a Grand Dragon, which we would call a governor, oversees the entire state. Uh, and then the, the top guy, the national guy who oversees all the states, which we would call a president, that person is known as the Imperial Wizard. So the Grand Dragon, his name was Roger Kelly, and he went from Grand Dragon eventually to Imperial Wizard. He was the first one that I met and sat down with and had a conversation. Daryl met with the Klansmen who were dressed in full regalia, not knowing the person they were about to be interviewed by was a black man. Well, he showed up with his bodyguard, which is called a Grand Nighthawk. A Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon, like, a grand, uh, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. So this Grand Nighthawk walked into the room first, and he was wearing military camouflage uh, fatigues, with the Mayok, the blood drop emblem right here, and uh, the initials KKK right here on his chest, uh, embroidered across his beret on his head were Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a, a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He came in and he was followed right behind him by, uh, by Mr. Kelly, the Grand Dragon, in a dark blue suit and tie. When the Nighthawk entered the room and turned the corner and saw me, he just froze. And Mr. Kelly bumped into his back because the guy had stopped short. And they stumbled and regained their balance looking all around the room. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, either the desk clerk, you know, gave them the wrong room number or this was a setup. This is an ambush. So I went like this to, to display my hands, nothing in them. And I stood up and I approached him. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. My name is Daryl Davis. Come on in. He, both he and the Nighthawk, shook my hand. So far, so good. And they both came in. When we come back, Daryl Davis meets with the Ku Klux Klan. This is Our American Stories. Jesse's story 
his segment with Daryl Davis, the black dude who collects KKK robes. Now, the meeting began, as you might suspect, a Klansman surprise black guy meeting to go. They insulted our friend Daryl here to his face. Well, we, you know, we began you know, talking back and forth. Uh, he let me know that um, I was inferior because I was black. And I was expecting stuff like that because, you know, I read all these books on the Klan already, so I knew the mentality. But I wanted you know, to draw everything out of him to find out, you know, how can he hate me when he doesn't even know me and hasn't even given me a chance to express myself and see if he still has those feelings. I asked him to have a seat. He sat down. He asked me for some identification, and I gave that to him. And then we uh, proceeded with this uh, interview. Now, I had a bag beside me, and in my bag, I had a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they also claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I'd never seen that in there, so I wanted to be able to pull out my Bible and say, here, please show me chapter and verse, where it says blacks and whites must be separate. Then there was a moment of tension. A little later on in the interview, there was kind of a strange noise in the room, and we all jumped. And I just knew that Mr. Kelly had made the noise, because I didn't make it. And because I could not discern what the noise was, I perceived it to be ominous and threatening. And plus, I was hearing that voice in my head, Daryl, don't, don't fool with Roger, Roger Kelly, he'll kill you, kind of thing. And I was ready to attack. You know, my eyes had locked with his eyes, because I'm looking at him like, what did you just do? I didn't say that, but my eyes were speaking to him. His eyes had locked with mine, and I could read the expression in his eyes, which were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between the two of us, like, what did either one of you all just do? The ice in the bucket had melted, and the cans of soda shifted, and that's what made the noise. And then we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. <laughs> but the teaching moment was this. All because some foreign, and underscore highlight the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, that being the bucket of ice and cans of soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful and accusatory of one another. So the lesson learned is ignorance breeds fear. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will, be, will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us. If you don't keep that hatred in check, that hatred will breed destruction. What happens next between Daryl Davis and the Klansmen is incredible. We became, you know, the best of friends. Well, it might be hard for us to understand how a black guy becomes friends with another guy who's proud and outspoken of his affiliation with the Ku Klux Klan, it helps to understand more about how Daryl Davis was raised. Uh, my parents were U.S. Foreign Service, so I spent a lot of time, you know, overseas in various countries around the world uh, with, you know, as an American embassy brat. And today, as a professional musician, I travel all over this country and around the world. If you combine my travels as a child with now my travels as an adult, I've been in 53 different countries on six continents. Because I was exposed early on to many, many different cultures, ethnicities, nationalities, traditions, colors, religions, etc. And all of that helped shape who I've become. And I saw people from all over the world 
getting along with each other. When I was in grade school overseas, you know, I'd be over there for two years and come back home, be here for a few months or a year, and then go back to another country. When I was a kid in the, in the 1960s in, in uh, elementary school, my classes were filled with other kids from Nigeria, Italy, Japan, Russia, France, Germany. Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids, we all went to the same school. And that's how I grew up. If you were to peep your head into my classroom door, you would say, that looks like a United Nations of little kids. That scenario was not here, back here in my own country, in the U.S. When I would return, I would either be in newly integrated or still segregated schools that had not quite gotten there yet. So I was either surrounded by all black people or black and white people. Today, when you walk into a, a uh, school classroom, you see what I saw. But back then, I was living 12 to 15 years ahead of my time. While Daryl might continue to be 12 to 15 years ahead of his time, even he became the target of Black Lives Matter. In his Netflix documentary called Accidental Courtesy, Daryl is confronted by a young BLM activist. Your time going into people's houses that don't love you, a house where they want to throw you under the basement. So you believe that nobody can change? No, you, I believe you believe the wrong people can change. What do you mean the wrong people can change? The white supremacists can't change. You don't believe they can change? No, white supremacists can't change. But I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that's going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And you're nothing but ignorant. Daryl later said that he befriended that young BLM activist and that they came to an understanding. In the same way that Daryl brings understanding to so many others, it all started with that simple question that came to him at the age of 10. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? One of my very favorite quotes of all time is um, by Mark Twain. It's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. We'd like to close our look into the life of Daryl Davis on a note that has absolutely nothing to do with race. While he's passionate about bringing people together, it's not the only aspect of what makes Daryl Davis an interesting person. He shared with us a fond childhood memory of the time he crossed paths with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bruce Springsteen, all on the same day. Well, Chuck Berry was coming to uh, Coalfield House at University of Maryland, the sports arena there. It was going to be Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, of course, I got down there super early, hoping I would you know, be able to sneak in and maybe meet him during sound check or rehearsal. Because I knew that the promoter had to supply a uh, backing band for him. So the concert uh, would not begin until like about 8 p.m. that evening. And I was a kid. I got a ride down there. And um, around noontime, you know, like eight hours before showtime, and the hangar doors were open. People were, like, bringing in equipment and speakers and lights and things like that. I, I just walked on in. Nobody stopped me. Um, so I said, you know, there was no security there at that particular time. And so I just hung out back there, stayed out of everybody's way. Uh, the band came, and I moved over near the stage where the band was, figuring that when Chuck comes for this sound check, 
you know, I'll get to see my idol and meet him or whatever. And the band was very nervous. Uh, they'd never worked with Chuck Berry before. They were down from New Jersey to, uh, to play for him. And their sound check was at 2 o'clock. So they assumed that he would be there around 2 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock rolled around and no Chuck Berry. <laughs> and uh, they even got more nervous. And so they went on stage. They did their sound check. They ran through some Chuck Berry songs. And they sounded fantastic. And, uh, you know, the hours ticked by and still no Chuck Berry. And so um, they went on at the, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, did a short set. And then uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, came and I got to meet him. And uh, he came on and did his thing, still no Chuck Berry. And about, about 15 minutes or so before uh, Jerry Lee finished, in walked Chuck Berry through the backstage door. He came in just by himself, no guitar, nothing. And he walked right by me and I froze. I thought, oh, you know, because, you know, it was like a total shock. He went right by me, and there was somebody standing down the hallway, and he stopped and spoke with that person. I don't know what he said, but in retrospect, I do. That person pointed further down the hallway to a door, and Chuck, you know, went down and went inside that door. And a few minutes later, he came back out, went right back by me again, back outside the backstage door, and then he returned with his guitar. And so, in retrospect, what happened was he went down to the promoter's office to get paid up front, and then he went and got his guitar. And he doesn't bring his guitar in until he, until he has money. So, um, brought his guitar in, and then, you know, I was standing over there near where the band was. He came over, and um, the band leader walked up to him. He's like taking his guitar out of the case and said, Hi, you know, my name is Bruce Springsteen. We're your, you know, we're your backup band. We thought you were going to be here this afternoon. Just said, no, you know, just totally oblivious. And um, he said, uh, we ran through some of your songs. I, I think everything should be okay. Do you know which ones you know, you're going to play tonight? And Chuck said something to the effect of, I think I'll play some Chuck Berry. <laughs> and he went on stage. The band went on right after him. And he like, just like, you know, went right into it. No key, no count off, nothing. And the band was right there with him. And that just kind of like just blew my mind. And that is the story of the one and only Daryl Davis. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show. We've all worn his jeans, yet most of us don't know anything about the man who created them. This is the story of Levi Strauss who died on this day in history in 1902. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Now, on to the story.
There's probably not a continent in the world where people don't wear Levi's and have that little patch on the back uh, with his name on it. He had a wonderful spirit, and that made him so extraordinary. The Levi's brand uh, is one of the bedrocks. It's just the bedrock of American culture. There's a symbol so tied to America, and we all have owned a piece of it. America has lived its life in jeans, blue jeans, Levi's blue jeans. After all, blue jeans have become a metaphor for America itself, especially Levi's. This is the story of how Levi Strauss threaded, stitched, and wove his iconic product into the fabric of America. Loeb Strauss was born in Bavaria on February 26, 1829, as the fourth child of Jewish parents who were peddlers, a profession relegated to Jews by Bavarian law. When Loeb became a teenager, his older brothers immigrated to New York City and immediately began sending back letters encouraging the rest of the family to make the move to America. America is a wonderful country. One can achieve success through careful attention to business and hard work, although our earnings are modest. Listen, listen, I'm our brothers. And no laws hostile to Jews. We are already very happy and become happier and happier every day. We have also made some modest money. Be courageous and follow us. Big hugs from Jonathan and Litton. Following the death of Loeb's father in 1847, the 19-year-old Loeb, with his mother and sister, traveled on board a German immigrant sailing ship for seven and a half arduous weeks to the land of the free. Where his older brothers have been operating for four years. Here's New York University historian, Hesia Diner. In the United States, nobody cared. Uh, synagogues could do whatever they wanted. Uh, there were no attempts by the government to regulate or uh, control the inner life of the Jews. Uh, it was up to Jews to do whatever they wanted. And it has been described that what raged in Bavaria in the 1820s, 30s, 40s was America fever. The newcomers squeezed into the tight, dark quarters of the Strauss brothers' New York City apartment on Canal Street. It is here in Manhattan where jeans boutiques are lined up one after the other. Loeb Strauss began his unstoppable rise to become one of the greatest American industrialists. On January 24th, 1848, gold is discovered in Northern California. One of us needs to take a first-hand look at the market out there. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins that Strauss planned to get rich by exploiting market forces instead of prospecting for gold. During the gold rush era, he writes, there were more prospectors than there were tents, shovels, pickaxes, buckets, and pans. The state of California was completely settled within three years. Well, then what are we waiting for? 
for you to go to California. But before Loeb Strauss went west, he became an American citizen. He swore an oath to the American Constitution and renounced the Bavarian king forever. At about the same time, he started going by the name of Levi Strauss. Here again is Hesia Diner. So for this young man to come and want to be able to communicate with his customers, to say I'm Loeb Strauss may have been more uh, difficult than to say I'm Levi Strauss. I'm not sure I'd want to say that this was a step towards assimilation because he's keeping his Hebrew name, but it's a way of adaptation to uh, the American circumstance. Levi Strauss took a steamship from New York City through Panama and at 24 years of age opened for business as a wholesale trader to the San Francisco gold miners in 1853. Too bad, too bad, the miner sighed, you should have brought us pants. Pants, why pants, asked Mr. Strauss, to the miner's saddening class. One of Levi Strauss' regular customers was the tailor Jacob Davis, a fellow Jewish immigrant residing in Reno. In addition to his daily business, Davis experimented with various sewing techniques in order to make the gold diggers' work pants even sturdier. The 49ers valued the practical trousers from the tailor in Reno, but the pants would bust at the seams when they stuffed tools or rock samples in the pockets. Complaints from the customers' wives began to pile up because only after a few weeks their husband's pants would rip. In this crisis, the tailor came up with a sensational idea. Davis used copper rivets to affix the pockets to prevent tearing when the fabric was put under extreme strain. It is a stroke of genius. However, he didn't have the $68 to register the patent. Here's Lynn Downey, historian for Levi Strauss & Co. He first went to Levi, and I think it's because Levi had such a reputation as a strong businessman, an ethical businessman, and someone who had resources, even though Levi was not a manufacturer. Jacob thought that he could help him start this new part of the business. Levi and Jacob had a little trouble getting the patent. There were patents already for rivets in shoes, and the patent office thought that putting rivets in pants was the same thing and not a new invention, but they kept reapplying. And eventually, on May 20th, 1873, Levi Strauss and Co. and Jacob Davis received the U.S. patent for strengthening pocket openings with rivets. He could have said no to Jacob Davis. He could have said, you know, I don't have any manufacturing facilities. I've never done manufacturing before. I'll just stick with my dry goods. But he didn't do that. He had vision. Um, and that's the kind of vision that makes you a pioneer. And when we come back, more on the story of Levi Strauss, who died on this day in history in 1902. As always, how this day in history is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses. When we come back, 
We continue with the story of Levi Strauss here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with our This Day in History, The Life of Levi Strauss. And by the way, the similarities to the life of Irving Berlin, anti-Semitism drove him out of his home in Russia, and ultimately this Jewish immigrant ended up writing White Christmas, and he was from Russia, but he wrote God Bless America. Uh, We're celebrating very often, the life stories of so many of the great men who came here from the arts and from business. And we do that thanks to Hillsdale College, who brings us this day in history every day. And by the way, it was pointed out to me by Hengler, who did such great work on this piece, and also in Mr. Antris's book, that in essence, Levi Strauss created the first brand. Before there was Coca-Cola, there was Levi's. Let's pick up where the story left off. The rivet idea turned out to be a jackpot. The real inventor, Jacob Davis, became a floor manager at Levi Strauss Mercantile Business, which was now specializing in the manufacturing of dungarees. It was 1873, and the Levi Strauss brand was born. The first decision for Levi and Jacob was to decide what fabric to choose. Here again is Lynn Downey. Men had worn denim pants, unriveted denim pants, for decades as workwear. So when Levi and Jacob decided to to choose a fabric to make these new pants from, it made sense to choose denim. It was what, what, what men were used to wearing for mining and farming and if you were a cowboy or whatever. So it became tr- the traditional fabric all the way you know, to today. Levi aimed to create consistency across the product line, writes Anschutz. The brand bore his name. It needed to have a reputation for quality. The childless Levi Strauss gave his nephews positions of responsibility early on. Now he needed their advice. In a few years, the patent on the riveted work pants would expire. What else could be done to make the durability of their pants more appealing to customers? The durability of our Levi's favorite nephew, Sigmund, proved to be an ingenious marketing expert in the discussion about the expiring patent. Most gentlemen, might I suggest this? Sigmund, this is brilliant. This is exactly what we need. The idea for the brand name was born. To the brand. To the brand. In order to accentuate the durability of the original riveted pants, 
and to distinguish the product line from their competitors, Levi Strauss & Co. developed a leather sewn-on patch in 1886 with a two-horse brand, which is the company's trademark to this day. In 1850, a man named Levi rounded up two stacks and hitched them to a pair of pants. Pants so tough, he promised a new pair free if they ripped. To prove this, he set up his unusual demonstration. And he put this symbol on the back of every pair of original blue Levi's. As Ann Schutz writes, consumers did not need to be literate to understand that Levi's were tough. Soon, profits from the production of pants surpassed all other earnings from the mercantile business. From 1890 onwards, all articles of clothing that are produced by Levi Strauss & Co. are systematically, consecutively numbered. The riveted work pants received the production number 501, which to this day is the designation for the classic style of Levi's jeans. The strength of the product is in its true to original form. The 501 line is not subject to any dictate of fashion. To this day, they are produced according to the traditional pattern and suggest to the wearer independence, freedom, and the American way of life. As the founder of the company, Levi Strauss grew older and enjoyed an ever-increasing popularity with his employees. Here's Lynn Downey. His employees were instructed not to call him Mr. Strauss, but to call him Levi, which I think is very unusual to be that informal with his employees. Around 1960, someone here at the company interviewed a woman who had worked in our factory when Levi Strauss was still alive. And she said, he was tough, but a fine fellow. And I think what that means is that he was all business. His life was about his business. And he wanted his business to run smoothly. He wanted to make a profit. And so he probably had very, very high standards. But the other side of that is the side of Levi that was such a philanthropist and was such a caring, giving person. So I think that he probably was very balanced. He was a tough businessman, but he was also a good person. The success of this company has been built from hard work. At 61, Levi Strauss retired from daily business operations. The company will be left in all of your names. And brought in his four nephews as joint partners. Anschutz writes, Success granted Strauss more leisure time to devote to charity. He had always been a generous provider when he lived in San Francisco. He took special interest in orphans, helping to establish the Pacific Hebrew Orphan Asylum and Home. Although Strauss was Jewish, he contributed to causes across religious lines, supporting Catholic and Protestant orphanages as well. Thank you, Uncle. Education was also an important cause. He established scholarships at the University of California and gave money to the California School for the Deaf. Levi's death in 1902 at the age of 73 made headlines. 
San Francisco declared it a business holiday so citizens could go to his funeral. And the flags flew at half-mast. Just a few years after Levi's death, on April 18, 1906, the company's headquarters were burned to the ground due to the estimated 7.8 magnitude Great San Francisco Earthquake. Here again is Levi Strauss and co-historian Lynn Downey explaining what happened next. They didn't have to rebuild the business. They were wealthy. They could have just walked away, but they didn't. They rebuilt the business from the ground up, and they started from scratch. Re rebuilt the company, started making jeans again, started wholesaling the dry goods again, and continued the business in the name of their uncle. Decades later, World War II would take the jeans to Europe. During World War II, American soldiers would take their Levi's jeans with them, um, both to Asia and to Europe, and they would wear them when they were on leave. So this was the first exposure of Levi's jeans to areas outside of the United States. In 1943, during World War II, the company registered a new trademark. The basis for the idea is the eagle, which is also part of the U.S. National Coat of Arms, symbolizing freedom and independence. The embroidered design, which is reminiscent of the flapping wings of an eagle, is stitched on the back pockets of the jeans. Levi Strauss never wore his own pants, and yet today, millions of people all over the world wear them and share in the American way of life. Levi Strauss, This Day in History. Great job on that, Greg. And there you have it, another great American story. Man comes here with nothing, builds something big, and gives much of it away. We hear that story over and over and over again. And just a couple of other facts. The zipper fly made its first appearance in 1954, and not everybody was thrilled. Someone allegedly wrote to the company asking, Why the heck did you put a zipper in your jeans? It's like peeing into the jaws of an alligator. Little did he know how often this would become a problem. Also, Levi's weren't called jeans until the 1950s. Jeans used to be called overalls, which was the old name for workwear. But after James Dean wore a pair in Rebel Without a Cause, they became wildly popular. The kids wanted another name for overalls, though, since that was a term their parents used. So they started calling them jeans. The oldest pair of blue jeans in the Levi's archives are kept in a fireproof safe to which only two people know the combination. They were over 130 years old and are estimated to be worth $150,000. They don't look that much different from the ones today. And more than a century later, consumers worldwide wear blue jeans an average of 3.5 days a week and own 8.6 pair. And by the way, we will do more stories out of Out Where the West Begins as well by Phil Anschutz because there are so many great ones. George Mortimer Pullman, Henry Wells and William Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Buffalo Bill Cody, Samuel Colt, Meyer Guggenheim, John D. Rockefeller, 
and Cyrus McCormick, and last but not least, Brigham Young. You know the names. We're going to cover them all over the next months and years to come. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this was brought to you by Hillsdale College's This Day in History series.